right. Uh, welcome to episode number 43 of the John Riley Project. And we are here with Bob Pasella from Sabuku Sushi here on Restaurant Row on Adams Avenue in North Park. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, Bob, we met you. I was here for lunch with my producer, Zeke. And uh, we met you. You were just this this surge <laughs> of energy, this entrepreneur that had built this sushi restaurant. You talked about the creativity in your menu. And, and you were, you know, being an entrepreneur at the same time you were taking care of business and helping customers and I just love the energy love the passion and I said this is a guy that exemplifies this what the podcast is all about which is life liberty and the pursuit of happiness so yeah. thank so, you John nice to meet you nice to thanks, meet you thanks for having me here so all right and thanks for coming here to yeah, my place this is this is your house right <laughs> we, keep, we keep arguing whether it's my world or yours we're no. in my restaurant but in a podcast we're in your world so okay. wonderful thank you for having me my pleasure so so first of all tell me a little bit about Sabuka sushi and about your business and, and the things that make this restaurant so special. Before we get into Sabuku Sushi, I think we have to go back um, because what makes Sabuku special is, my, is, as you said, my passion. Um, I came out here in my early 20s. Um, I grew up in Pittsburgh, PA. I went to school in upstate New York, and my parents retired out here. And I kept vacationing out here, fell in love with it, and uh, came out here early 20s and immediately fell in love with fishing, deep-sea fishing, uh, fish in general. Um, the only fish we have in Pittsburgh is Long John Silver's, or at least back in the 80s. Uh, and that's right. not fish. Right? Let's, let's not kid anybody. I don't even think they're around anymore because everyone realizes at some yeah. point that's not fish. Right. Um, but I fell in love with the, really the fishing. Um, the whole ocean environment, I think a lot of people do, enamored with it. There's no oceans in Pittsburgh. we got rivers. Yeah. Um, three rivers. Three rivers, actually. <laughs> yeah. And they're not very clear. <laughs> but uh, so I fell in love with fish. I fell in love with, of course, fishing. And in that context, of course, when you're fishing, you're cutting the fish right there on the boat. Yeah. Uh, the first time I ever had raw fish, I, I just enamored with it. It was just an amazing flavor. It was uh, uh, the brininess of the sea. The saltiness was perfect. The juice. Uh, I think probably my first fish was was in fact a tuna, and that is absolutely my favorite. Yellowfin tuna is my absolute favorite. So, like anyone else, uh, initially it starts off as a hobby. Uh, initially, going to sushi restaurants, checking them out, falling in love with the cuisine. Um, first five, ten years, all you're doing is just eating out. And I kind of joke with myself way back when, before I even considered having a restaurant, because initially there wasn't a passion to have a restaurant. Right. The passion was just about raw fish and sashimi, never yeah, having had it before. Right. And I always joked that I would either owe a restaurant, i.e. a sushi restaurant, yeah. or own one. Right. Never really thinking the latter would actually be the case. Um, while I'm out here in my 20s, I actually uh, began a career in banking and finance. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and again, uh, for those of you that won't be watching this, you'll see a few gray hairs here. I love how people think I go from banking and finance to sushi in one week. Uh, decades of, of practicing, uh, first of all, just learning, teaching myself. I were really self-taught on the sushi side. Uh, again, started with the raw fish, understanding fish, um, querying. Every time I went out to a sushi restaurant, uh, whether they were wanted to or not, I'd ask them a million questions. I'd query them. Uh, the advent of Google and, and, and YouTubes and just teaching myself about the various fish and so forth. Um, started making rolls probably horribly at the beginning, but the, the focus was always on the quality of the fish. And to me, that's the biggest thing. You can take me to a steakhouse, you miscook my steak, but if everything else is fine, I'll go back. Right. You send me to a fish house and you give me bad fish, I'm never going back. Right. So first thing that I think is most important in understanding uh, the creativity that Sabuku exhibits is not to... Uh, uh, 
cover up the quality of the fish as, as rather as to enhance it. And so for me, but but one of the things I found going out to sushi restaurants in San Diego, and, and nothing, I mean, we all know about Sushi Oda being kind of the de facto um, sushi spot of San Diego. Give him a lot of credit, first guy here. His focus on quality was exemplary. Um, but what happens is you get a successful restaurant like that, and then all of his, um, I hate to use the word minions, but folks, his disciples, his mm-hmm. his, his uh, understudies, all open additional restaurants, and they're all very similar. They might change a, a role or two. They might change the cuisine. I mean, they might, might change um, uh, a, a couple items. I mean, the, the way the restaurant looks. Yeah. But when I was going out and dining out with sushi, I kept finding basically the same restaurants over and over and over. Yeah. And to varying degrees of quality. Uh, some focused on the quality aspect. Some would focus on the, you can see that there are more, you know, the problem with sushi, I'm backing up where I'm bouncing around this quite a bit good. on you. Yeah, it's all good. The problem with the sushi cuisine is we all know what to expect from McDonald's. We all know what to expect from like an Outback. And then let's say if we were to go to Donovan Steakhouse or Greystone downtown, we know what to expect there. But if it's Bob Sushi, Jim Sushi, Gary Sushi, um, how do you know what the difference is? I mean, tuna is just like steak. You could spend $20 a pound. Right. You could spend $10 a pound. Nothing wrong with the $10 a pound if that's what you're interested in. Uh, we've all bought wine at uh, Trader Joe's, two buck chucks, and <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, rather enjoyed yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's not the same as a $300 bottle from Napa. Yeah, okay. sure. Um, so, again, you just have to understand there's differences. And uh, to me, that was the only variation that I found throughout the sushi world. So uh, going back, again, decades, starting out as a, as a hobby of mine, I started making sushi for family and friends. It became rather somewhat of a social experiment for me um, as I began to be get more become more creative. Um, I started making rolls and introducing what I like to call my meat and potatoes background. Growing up in Pittsburgh, uh, again, the, yeah, the yeah. fish was Long John Silver's. Yeah, right, so right. Uh, it was burgers, it was hot dogs, it was um, cooked things, it was fried things. There was, you know, uh, but there's something wonderfully comforting. It's, there's a reason it's called comfort food. Yeah, I mean, right. a meatloaf or a mashed potato. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's warm, it's rich savory and I always felt that the traditional sushi restaurants and again we're going back decades the 80s and the 90s here we are in 2019 mm-hmm. um, the, the, the sushi markets just didn't really offer a lot of variety and to me that was it was uh, I mean again it, I did we'd go to the places that had the great fish but other than that there was really beyond that um, that's amazing because you think of sushi chefs as artists right mm-hmm. absolutely I mean, of course we are. probably more so than any other type of chef presentation is incredibly Everything. important everything but but still they were just churning out the same old thing pretty much it was good but good. it was the same it's almost like you know, you're talking about the the sushi that you know the sushi restaurant that really set the standard in San Diego. It's almost like an NFL coaching tree, right? right? Where they have all these other coaches come and they have the same philosophy. Perfect analogy, yeah. And, and they... For and years they, we had four three defenses and then all of a sudden we had three fours. Right. And then all of a sudden we got 23 fours. Because it's a copycat. Copy right, exactly. And we so, all are. We all are. It's, right. But as, but you decided uh, you're not going to play that game. And I, that's why I got to the... You, I saw your menu. You have sushi with bacon in it. Yeah. Cooked, fried, pan-seared. In my 20s, as I said, one of the restaurants that I went to, if any, if any of our older podcast listeners remember Quigs. They had a little sushi bar inside. John was a sushi chef. I believe he's still here in San Diego somewhere. Um, he had something called uh, the t- the tomato. And uh, uh, 
I had said to him, why don't we do it this way? Why don't we sear some scallops? Why don't we use some really fresh tuna and make it this way? And we kind of made a special together as I, at that point I was a customer. And he it became our kind of go-to item. We would go in every few days and, and get that item, the, the, which I now call the stuffed tonado on my, my menu. But uh, it was so good that he actually put it on his menu as well. Um, and it's just simply searing, you know, adding a seared scallop to beautiful fresh tuna, um, adding a little bit of crunch, adding a little bit of texture. Nice. And when you sear something, there's something about the proteins that, that kind of come out, uh, yeah. almost like a metallic flavor, yeah. uh, brightness yeah. um, when you char something. Yeah. Uh, even when we do our chicken, I do our chicken bowls. I always joke with all my chefs, please don't make albino chicken. There's nothing worse when you get that chicken in a yeah. sauce and yeah. it's all white and rubbery. And, and I call it albino chicken. Yeah. If you char it just a tad, little salt and pepper, people think you need to be fancy sometimes. Yeah. And sometimes it's, a, it's just doing the simple things really well. Right. And I think that's one of the things that I taught myself or I came to the conclusion. Oh, I mentioned I was a financial guy on here. So obviously I have a left brain, right brain problem here. Um, that's I'm, maybe I'm, not a problem. I mean, not a problem. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, very analytical, very detail oriented. That's good. Um, and, 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 and that's so important with sushi. And that is one of the things that the Odas and the traditional Japanese culture that they that's their thing. They focus once they once they come up with an idea, i.e. sushi, they're going to they're gonna strive to do it better than anybody and everybody yes, else. Yes. The problem is they're a little narrowly focused in that direction. Their fish will be the best or they attempt right. to be. But again, there wasn't much in the way of selection. So going back to uh, backing up again, I apologize. My story is not this, one that's this easily, is a great story. Okay, it's not it's not easily told. Is okay. This is where we were. Here's where we are, <laughs> um, because it is a confluence of a lot of different things. So um, later in my life, a divorce happened, and the social aspect of sushi became almost uh, more than a hobby. I was in a situation where um, being single and out and about in your forties. Going to parties uh, with folks with means, you're going to friends' house with couples, and yeah. uh, they wanted to throw parties. They knew I was a quasi sushi chef, and so they're like, "Hey, Bob, well, you know, you want to cook sushi? You know, like, want to make sushi for us tonight at this party?" And of course, I wanted to go to the party because if there were any single ladies yeah, there, yeah, right, right. Uh, why not? Yeah. So it, it kind of became one of those funny uh, hobbies for me, um, more than a hobby, but a but but, but a paying hobby, not one that any certainly make a living off of. But that's where I really began to kind of show my creativity. And I started making roles and doing things beyond the traditional roles that I had copied for decades before. And kind of where I uh, found out that I actually have uh, some talent in that area. And I always like to tell people, we all know someone who plays the guitar beautifully well, but isn't in a band or anything. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you don't have to be, quote unquote, a designated chef. And I would, I would tell anybody that no matter what you, where you started in life, um, there's no reason you can't be something else later on. Um, I started off as a banker. Actually, I started off, it's funny, in my, my early years in high school I was an auto mechanic and I wanted to go down that road I wanted to build cars muscle cars in the late 70s early 80s it was all about building 68 Chevelles and 71 Camaros Um, the old muscle car age was exciting times but I soon realized I wanted to make money and got into, you know, go to college, banking yeah. and finance. Yeah. And now I'm a restaurateur. So um, but all I discovered way. all the while discovering along the way different talents, different yeah. abilities. And so while I'm out doing all this sushi in a social setting and, and some money's coming in, uh, people were just telling me these are roles that we've never seen anywhere. We have a chillaxin nice. role where I love Chilean sea bass, but I pan sear it. And it's just, you know, torch it and glaze the aioli. Um, attention to the details. And I started making things that you just don't find in sushi places here. Yeah. San Diego and I friends constantly telling me how are you not 
opening a restaurant. And at this point in my life, I had no intention of opening a restaurant, right. to be honest with you. I mean, it, it was a banker. I was in finance. I was doing well. I had a great career. Um, but I just, you know, I had this passion for sushi. Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously on a Tuesday night, nobody's home and I'm making sushi. Um, <laughs> so there's a problem there. <laughs> so I said, you know what? I've, I've been doing the banking and finance thing now for, uh, and now I'm in my late 40s. Um, and, uh, I'm, I'm saying I've, and I've done the banking and finance thing. I've made some money. Uh, I had some money put aside. And uh, it, the, I, it, being a financial guy, understanding the business acumen yes. necessary to yes. be successful, understanding that starting a business, no matter what you plan for, you should plan for twice as much. Uh, yeah. If you think your expenses are X a month, they're going to be X times two. Right. And if you think your revenue is going to come in at Y, it's Y minus 10. <laughs> I mean, right, yeah, right. everything plan for everything yeah. go wrong. And right. it really is the case. Opening this restaurant was eye-opening. Um, we'll go into some of those things, some of the challenges right off the bat. But I said, okay, you know what? I, I, I think I can do this. I've, I've lived in Normal Heights, uh, North Park here for the past uh, 10 years. Uh, the nearest sushi places weren't the type of sushi places that were uh, indicative of, like, the Odas and the uh, Onos and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. They were kind of the more uh, get the kids in here with the cheap sake, uh, cheap rolls. Yeah. Uh, if I wanted good sushi, I, you know, and here's the thing with San Diego. People don't realize, even going five miles on a map, you can Google it. Like, from my house to, to a good sushi spot was five miles. Mm-hmm. But if I had to cross El Cajon Boulevard, University yeah, Boulevard, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you're in Solana Beach. You're yeah. not coming into North Park on Friday night at 5 o'clock because even though it's only a four-mile stretch on the freeway, that freeway is not moving for 30 minutes. That's right. So very interesting how the geography of San Diego plays into the business demographics. Anyhow, oh, yeah. So I'm in this neighborhood for a period of time. There are no good sushi spots in anywhere in North Park at that point. this part of North Park. And I start playing around being a financial guy with the idea of building a business plan. I've done it for others. Yeah. Why not do it for myself? And it's kind of funny when you start going down that road, how people, um, as I talk to people, uh, the business director for the uh, uh, business association here, well, why aren't you going to do this? This is what I mean. This is just a project. We need sushi. We need a good sushi spot. Then you talk to somebody else and they're like, yeah, you, you just would be genius. Why yeah. not? Anyhow, so I basically, in my my planning stages of more of an exercise, maybe I was thinking at the time, how serious am I about the restaurant? Was I maybe um, just practicing my trade as a planner? Um, but it came to fruition where I was like, okay, you know, I can start, maybe I should pull the trigger on this. And so back in 2010, um, started actually looking for locations. Um, said, okay, I'm, I'm going to do this. And uh, Knowing I had no restaurant experience, I've never, even in college, I didn't even work at a server. This is my very first restaurant, Sabuku Sushi. Um, crazy to think about that, that, that I literally had zero restaurant experience. So one of the things I knew I needed to do was bring on an existing uh, head chef that would have had a lot of restaurant experience. Mm-hmm. So I was able to find a young man at the time, a uh, nice young man. Uh, he's also still here in San Diego, Zach Stoffer, good young kid, um, and he helped me uh, further craft the menu, come up with some ideas, and I pulled the trigger. And we opened Sabuku in July of 2011 with one of the most eclectic sushi menus you've, you'll ever find. And again, we talked about the differences, adding fried rolls. We've got a Sandiago roll. I swear I make 100 of those a day. I it just... 
you know, people love fried. You go to the Del Mar Fair, they're frying butter. Right. Um, so the American palate. And, 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 and so I would say that I would say to anybody that hasn't tried Sabuku and, and wants to know what the difference is. Um, I'm often told and even in, in negative Yelp reviews are people like, well, this isn't Japanese. And I'm like, <laughs> I don't see any Japanese Buddhas anywhere. I don't see any cats. I don't see any right. Japanese writing. Last time I'm checked, I'm Polish from Pittsburgh. I don't. <laughs> the, the cuisine is Japanese, but right. I've taken it in a completely new direction. Right. Yeah. Cooked foods, meats, uh, 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 different ingredients, pan searing, frying, cooking, baking rolls. We do bake rolls. We, uh, we've got a couple new rolls uh, of Volcano we just added to the menu, and it's already one of our top sellers. People love it. People want something different. Right. And, and don't get me wrong. I, as I said before, I understand what a good piece of fish is. And to that end, I will tell everybody that uh, I love how... When people think about quality uh, or try to describe quality, they don't sometimes really fully understand. I've literally had people who have known sushi as the frozen type of saku yeah. seared ahi, and then when you give them a piece of beautiful big eye yellowfin tuna, and they're like, oh, I don't like that. It's like, well, I just gave you $20 tuna. You're telling yeah. me you like the $5 tuna better than the 20 Yeah. But that's our perception. And right, that's, that's right, why right. You know, I, I, I Yelp reviews and, and, and people do negative reviews. We always strive for perfection. Of course, you don't. But um, when it comes to quality, I will put my quality up against anybody's in the world. The, the cooking and the frying is meant to complement the high quality, everything that we do here, whether it be the fish, my avocados or haas, they're fresh every day. You know, everything about this place first starts with quality. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that was evident when we had our, our lunch here. I mean, I was blown away by how good it tasted. It was clearly high-quality uh, fish. But it was just awesome for you as an entrepreneur to be so innovative, so creative. You were building something that no one had really ever done this way. Not to this degree. Yeah. I mean, and, and you were building a business here in the, in the Normal Heights area on mm-hmm. Adams Avenue that was lacking. So you came in with no restaurant experience, and you've been in business now for almost Eight years. Eight years. I mean, this restaurants are incredibly difficult to be successful. It's incredibly hard. And, and and here you are persevering as an innovator, a creator, an entrepreneur, zigging when the rest of the world is zagging, and and uh, and living the dream. Yeah. Every day I come in, I laugh. I'm like, <laughs> this is my rice. This is my chair. This is my napkin. I yeah. love it. And you 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 felt that energy. I try to exude it. Uh, passion has its negative side too. Look, there's days it's frustrating. Um, I've had days where I've got employees that do some really stupid shit and, um, you know, and they're going to serve that to my customer. And it's going to be a negative Yelp review. So, yeah, yeah in the heat of the moment, you know, I, there, there's been days, you know, I kind of look like that soup Nazi guy from Seinfeld. <laughs> People are like, I'm yelling at my employees. Yeah. I'm yeah. like, hey, guys, that passion goes both ways. Right. Um, you know, I, I talk to them afterwards and stuff. But, uh, no, I have a very good team, generally speaking. Uh, you know, we, this podcast is talking about being an entrepreneur. I will share with you that the hardest challenges employees. Um, I have had some very good ones, but the constant turnover in this industry is, is blows me away. Having come from the corporate world and right. banking and finance, that had its own issues. You have PhDs and master degrees and mm-hmm. people uh, that would still be terrible at what they did because they were smart, they stayed in the business or right. they knew the money was good. The 
problem you have in this industry is that so many people are in this to do uh, their dreams are somewhere else. Mm-hmm. The reality is 90% of your service people don't want to be service people, truth be told. Right. Sure. I mean, your sushi chefs want to be sushi chefs, but half your kitchen guys are just doing this because they don't really know what else to do. They're uh, in their 20s. They're they're not sure of themselves or they're, if they're older, they, they just have been in this for so long that it, it, and they don't really have any other skill sets. Um, so they bounce around because they sure. keep looking for the sure. next place to make them happy, but they're not happy. Right. So the question is, is you're looking externally to find happiness and you need to find it yes. internally. Absolutely. Yeah. No doubt. So no matter how hard something is, if you're not happy, it really doesn't matter. You can right. say that this job was terrible. And I would say, well, why are the last six jobs terrible? Well, you keep doing the same thing. Right. It's almost like politics. We keep asking for new, new, uh, we go Democrat one year, we go Republican and the same shit keeps happening. Our bills go higher. <laughs> our taxes get higher. I don't think we've had a, a budget that trunk in any particular uh, uh, politician or whatever yeah. you want to call it, a Republican House with a, a Democrat president. I mean, it's the same thing. If you're if you're going to keep doing the same job and just thinking that I'm going to go work for Sabuku this month and two years from now I'm going to go work down the street at this place. And you, and you see that a lot in this industry. Yeah. It's moving around, looking to... Um, better themselves, of course, but they're really not doing what's necessary to better themselves. They're just right. simply changing, uh, they're basically changing clothes. <laughs> right, yeah. You know? sure. They're not changing themselves internally. Well, there are people in their 20s who are trying to figure themselves out. Some of them maybe are unwilling to take a risk, like you did, to start a business. Some don't have the resources to do that. And some are just drifting through life. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. and, um, and I, that's what I really liked about your story, is that, you know, here you, you were like, you like to build cars, then you like to Build finance, build business. Now you're building a sushi restaurant. So you've you've had that drive in you. It doesn't seem like you were ever the type that just drifted. You, certainly not patting myself on the back in any way, shape, or form. But too often today, when you look around and you look at people who who aren't where they want to be, the first thing you notice right off the bat is where is their dedication? If you want to be, I always joke with my uh, employees, um, and I'm gonna, can, I, can we use the S word on this? You can say whatever you want. All right, so I always <laughs> tell every employee that, you know, I don't care where you are in life, if, if life dealt you a pair of deuces and that guy's sitting with four aces, um, you got to deal with it. And yeah, right. here's how you deal with it. I don't care if you're a shit shoveler at the zoo. Yeah. Be the best damn shit shoveler at the zoo, and I promise you, you won't be a shit shoveler forever. The problem that you have is that so many people work somewhere for three to four weeks, and then all of a sudden they have these expectations that things should start happening for them. Right. You have to make it happen. That's right. You have to have the drive. That's right. When I was in banking and finance, um, People always wondered why was I always the top banker with when I was Wells Fargo. I was one of the top bankers, and I went into their premier banking. One of the top premier bankers went into commercial lending, top lenders, went off on my own uh, initially on my own, but through uh, an entity. They couldn't figure out why am I always successful because I don't wait for others to tell me what I need to do to be successful. Yes. So many people today are hesitant. They come in yes. here and they yes. want direction. They want you got to give it to them. Right. Sometimes you just got to go get it. Right. Um, in one of my careers, I worked for um, a Beverly Hills bank. I, I'm, are we allowed to mention names? You or? can say whatever you want, right. man. This so is I all worked good. For, I worked for City National Bank yeah. um, when I left uh, one of my last banking careers. And we had the smallest branch. This is a Beverly Hills bank. All they cared about was Beverly Hills at the time. It, right. was, it, was the, it was the bank to the stars. They had a few other offices throughout L.A. And here I am now managing the San Diego office. No marketing, no support. They I don't even think they really cared at the time that San Diego <laughs> had a branch. I think yeah. they had a couple movie stars that, that had some accounts down here, and they felt it was a good idea to have a branch. Right. Um, 
no tools, no very little marketing. Um, and so uh, I get into this branch, this new job. They wanted a branch manager to take it somewhere. Uh, but they say that, but then you know, don't always give you all the resources. Right, right. And within about two years, we were uh, either the number one or number two top right performing branch. Nice. No marketing dollars, no advertising. We didn't have movie stars. You don't have John Travolta saying, to, hey, yeah. John, come on over, open a bank account with these guys. Yeah. I mean, it was just crazy. And they couldn't figure out how I was doing it. And I'm like, well, just called effort. Right. I'm not going to wait for you to give me the marketing. I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, I didn't get the marketing dollars this quarter, so we didn't succeed. Yeah. I got out there, I made the phone calls. We got, I got our team motivated to, to go out and make things happen. Nice. And that's kind of been my philosophy my whole life. As I said, if you're going to be a shit shelter, just be the best. Yeah, exactly. Just be the best at it. Yeah. It's amazing what happens because in that job that you're at, wherever you are now, you won't be there in the future right. if you can see where you want to take it. Right. Too many people come into a job and that's where they see themselves right there. And there's the, that's kind of the first problem in a problem. It's where a lot of people just, they just don't have that vision of the position themselves. Or if they have the vision, they think someone's going to help them make it happen. Right. I'm going to come in here and be a sushi chef, and um, we're going to. I'm going to. We're going to grow this business, but Bob's going to grow it. I'm just going to make sushi. No, I need you to to kill it. I need you. Yes. Are you talking to your friends? Are you are you doing the things necessary outside of the work to be a better sushi chef, to be top at your field, yeah. to get recognized right. so that we bring people in? Mm-hmm. You can't just do the job and think that somehow things are going to be different four years later if that's all you're going to – what you are today, if that's where you're happy and that's where you're comfortable, if that's where you want to stay, you will stay there. I promise. No question. No question. So you have to have some sort of vision for the future and you literally can't wait for anyone else to do it don't you know what's what is that old phrase uh it's better to ask for forgiveness uh beg for forgiveness beg for forgiveness than, than ask, ask for permission. permission yeah and you see that yeah. throughout today's young, today's young community yeah. is so afraid of conflict um the social media situation has got us where nobody's actually communicating anymore we bark at each other through a post and then we wonder whether it's passive aggressive responses but see, you're, you're, you gotta take control of your situation yeah. right yeah, whatever it is. And it you gotta, sometimes it sucks. It does suck. <laughs> life, life is loaded with with obstacles and people oh, hammering you down every day. But you've got to fight through it. Yes. And, and you've got to believe in yourself, and you've got to be the best at what you're doing at that moment. And like you said, if and you, even if you're not, then you just retool. You get up the next day yeah. and say, "Okay, I won't yeah. do that again tomorrow." Yeah. yeah. And I see that as one of the really challenges with employees these days is that so many of them are just kind of waddling through without any focus, right. without any drive. Or the focus they have, as I said, the service industry, the focus they have isn't in the service industry. It's something else. This you is know, just a they're job. They're going to college. Else. They've been going to college for 17 years. So that's the other thing that drives me nuts. <laughs> Stop. Kids, if you've been in college for more than five years, you need to reconsider your life because you're not serious about going to college. Right. No, I, I meet people all the time, 35-year-old, going to college, uh, I think they go to college because they just want to, don't want to pay the loans. But at some point, you got to say, "Am I going to get this done, or am I?" Because no one wants a forty-year-old with a college degree against a twenty-one-year-old who did right. it in four years with a college degree. And they don't seem to get that. People don't seem to understand. Everybody I know is going to college, <laughs> but all you're doing is accruing a lot of debt. What are you accomplishing? Well, you have to have I'm, a not a, I'm not against. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not trying to say I'm not against higher education. What I'm saying is, is, is education going to take you somewhere? Right. Have you thought about it? Yeah, you have a if plan. you are seventeen years into your college diploma. And you're basically doing business administration. And, and your, your plan is to graduate at 45 
are you going to be better? Is that going to get you a job <laughs> that's going right. to pay you better? They, they have visions they're going to make 170000 You just basically gave yourself an entry-level position at 45 right. to have a college degree. That's exactly what's, right. What's, what kind of strategy is that? I see a lot of people use, and I think they use it almost as a crux because they don't want to admit that really they don't really have a strategy. I'm just going to go to school, and, and if I get enough education, maybe something will happen. Right. But they don't have a plan. They really don't. I, I meet so many people, 20s, 30s, 40s, they're going to school, and I'm like, but what are you going to do with it? Right. You're going to accrue a lot of debt. You're going to accrue a lot of knowledge, but are you going to put it to work? Because you've got to put it together. Knowledge is great, but knowledge with, you know, 100000 in debt and no plan to pay that debt back, you know, let's not, you know, let's not hope for debt relief. I think a lot of people are in that trap right now. Well, it's brutal. You know, college is expensive. <laughs> college is but, you know, the thing is, is that you can come up with a plan. Like, you had a plan. You were a financial uh, executive, mm-hmm. a professional, and you changed your plan. Right. And, and that's okay. People, You can change your plan. Oh, some absolutely. People, you can, some, and you some should. Some people don't really think that through because they're they're in paralysis analysis trying to figure out what is that dream career that dream job when really you just need to take control of your life and focus on you have integrity in what you do that's like the shit shoveler and and then just keep ratcheting it up yeah exactly and you might find that you know um Again, someone had told me when I was working on cars that I would become a banking finance executive, that I would one day open a sushi restaurant. I probably would have told him to go pound salt. So that's the beautiful thing, self-discovery. Um, well, let's let's follow switch. passion. I think passion is important. Oh, yeah. So, you know, people who are doing something they don't want to be doing, get the hell out of your job. Stop to oh. stop right there. Oh, you're, yeah. you're wasting everyone else's yeah. time. We all know it. Yes. You've seen the server yes. Yes. that doesn't want their job that you can yes. tell is, you know, I don't know, wherever she, he or she wants to be. Uh, we've seen the executive that, you know, is just not happy with where they are. They're working. They, they're not hanging out with their family. But, mean, you know, when that happens, when, when they have that moment and they realize, I need to quit this job that I hate, the minute they do it, they feel like they've had a burden lifted from them. Right. And then they feel like now they can blossom. Yeah, you know, but it's amazing. Yeah, it's, a, yeah. It, it's the, like a trap. The, the flip side is, well, the flip side is that they do it on the emotional aspect of it. See, what you talk about yeah. is I had a plan. Yeah. So when I did all these things, I didn't just do them on a whim. So you get the executive who's been working for 40 years, didn't think it through, quits. Because a lot of people really get paid some really good money that don't, I don't want, I, the hard <laughs> word is to say deserve it. I know yeah. some people who are making 170000 a year working about 30 hours a week, and truthfully, they're not committed. That means to me that I probably, knowing what I know about finding people who want to do what they do, mm-hmm. I could find that job. They can be replaced for about half the cost oh, yeah. and whatnot. So you get these people that, you know, they're executives at HP, they've got their benefits package, they quit, they're making 160, they quit, and then they want to be a consultant or something. Yeah. And then they have no money. They, right. didn't, they didn't think that through. They bought the, the, the house is paid or the, the house expenses. And if you're going to do something like that, you got to have, when I say a plan, you got to think about all aspects right. of it. You got to look at it from many different angles. It's hard. It's yeah. very difficult to really come up with a good plan. And really, yeah. it's hard to take control of your own life and, and think it through. Because right. it's just easy to drift. Yeah, it's drift. It, it's, but it's hard to execute. Very hard. Let me switch gears. Just yeah, a bit, sure. you know. We're uh, this podcast is about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And the liberty angle is what I usually talk about politics. And sure. I'm curious to you, from you as a business owner, what are some things that have happened with local government that have they've created hurdles for you to jump over? They've created obstacles for you to be successful. 
And how did you well, the, overcome the first it? Thing, the first thing that was eye-opening and, and, all, and beyond, truthfully beyond ridiculous, uh, after I found my location, the very first check I had to write was to the city of San Diego. And I think people have this feeling that somehow opening a restaurant is, you know, you, you, the, I, you kind of, I grew up with the images of uh, the doctor has a wife, she's a great cook, so they want to open a restaurant, they put 20000 into it, and she opens it, it doesn't work, but, you know, hey, at least she had a, you know, she tried it out. Yeah, yeah. Um, restaurants nowadays are ridiculously expensive. And then let me tell you, the very first check I had to write was the city of San Diego for just the fees alone. I had this blueprint. And this is a little restaurant. This isn't even 1,500 square feet. Mm-hmm. So why you imagine restaurants downtown that are 10,000, 12,000 oh, yeah, square yeah. feet? So for a 1,500 square foot restaurant with mostly sushi, a very small kitchen perhaps with mm-hmm. the equipment, was $25,000 just to the city of San Diego for what? For the planning fees. The planning fees? Yes. That was $25,000. The very first uh, first check was you have to get your place first. They won't let you do what? plans. So you have to have a lease. You have to have a lease and they, you have to have a place. Yeah. I, I, I truly understand the city's dilemma there because if people plan, you plan what you think your restaurant's going to look like, then you get the space. Can't be that. Right. So they don't want to work off of plans that are pie in the sky. They want right. to work on reality. So the first check is you get your lease. The very next check, uh, I guess, would be to the, I guess the third check. Okay. The next check's to the architect or the designer mm-hmm. um, to draw up your plans and then you submit them. I was blown away. I thought a few thousand dollars, never in my wildest dreams, this little itty-bitty restaurant that I think they'd take 25 grand from me. Plus, wow. it's over. And then as, as, as there's additional checks, etc., the, the fees to open just to the city was about 30000 Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Crazy. Crazy. Wow. I mean, it's, yeah. it's like... Uh, so you people think you just... So, so here's the thing you have to understand. For anybody, anybody who has a small restaurant, give go in there and pat the owners on the back. I love how everybody <laughs> gives all the credit to the employees. And I look, they, they do work hard, too. I'm not trying to take that away. Yeah. But I am, I'm so impressed that we have so many small business owners, restaurant owners out here. Do you realize we spend twenty to 30000 on fees? We spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on our kitchens. And... You know, you basically drop any any kitchen you see that sells arape across the street. Everybody's probably dropped a quarter million dollars to open a restaurant. Wow! Thank them. They're, they're you know they put up a lot of their lives yeah. to be there. Either, yeah. either in past, i.e., I, I was fortunate. I used finances. I was in a, a good financial position. Right. I opened Sabuku Sushi with zero debt. Right on. Thank God. Mm-hmm. No, because it's hard. Yeah, it, yes. I didn't expect yeah. twenty five thousand. Yeah, like yeah. I said your, yeah. your expenses are twice as much. Yeah. Labors. Twice as much as you expend. And in, in, in revenue, you're not making millions of dollars. I love how people complain about restaurants to such a degree. Yet, and, and let me give you an example. If your plumber comes out to your house just to clear a drain, before he even does the drain, he has you get a little piece of paper that says this is an $80 job. Right. Minimum, $80. Now, for $80, you can sit in my restaurant for two hours. <laughs> you can get very good food. Yes. You can get waited on by employees. Yes. How much do you think I make on an $80 ticket? Now, obviously, I do a lot more tickets per day than that plumber yeah, can yeah. do. But my point is, is that people don't really, I think, appreciate well, the profit margins the, are really thin. how much a restaurant tour yeah. gives them themselves. Yes, and I'm not complaining. Please don't get me no, wrong. I, I I'm passionate that. about what I do. I love this. I yeah. get to come in. And I I drive a half a mile to work. Oh, beautiful! I know. I, I I love it. I, I meet wonderful people like you guys. I mean, we had fun that day. I, I, you should be passionate, and there's a reason. 
that was Rafi. They're there. The owners are across the street. These, all these restaurants. There's a reason the owners are there. We're not making millions of dollars. We're passionate about what we do. Right and I wish more people would understand that and kind of be a little bit more appreciative of how much the owner actually contributes to the success of the restaurant. Right. Right. That you know we do replace uh, and employees have a valuable part, no doubt about it. But I, you know, and I, it, it's just. People just don't appreciate well, he, how hard it is. We, well, yeah, I mean, because as so an owner, on the political side, and then you know the, the, all the labor laws oh, yeah. that you have to be on top of. I mean, it's incredible. You talk about the political aspects of it. Um, I every day I get a letter from the EDD saying some person filed an unemployment claim. Uh, you can't get unemployment if you quit. So I constantly am filing paperwork and uh, saying this person quit two years ago. Why am I getting? Why are you trying to charge me thousands of dollars? And I'm going to tell you it's. Gary, an employee can work for you for 90 days if you terminate them, i.e., I, I, yeah. involuntarily. Yeah. You could be on the hook for, they may you may have paid them $1,500 in, in wages. Uh-huh. I've got two employees right now. Well, I've, uh, last year, two employees cost me $10,000 in unemployment claims. People think the government pays this stuff. Government no, doesn't pay no, this no, stuff. Yeah. They charge the employers. That's right. So I have an employee that worked 100 days for me. Whatever you can imagine, minimum wage and tips and whatever, whatever that might be, I don't know, fifteen hundred dollars or something for whatever or two, I don't know, whatever the amount was. Yeah, they're on. I'm on the hook for ten thousand dollars. They charge my uh, account, right? And if the account from my payroll taxes don't cover it, every year I get this nice little bill for last year's bill was eight thousand dollars on January. I get a nice eight thousand dollar bill for former employees. They're not even with me anymore. Right. Welcome to America. Welcome to California. Right. Because they'll let them sit on unemployment. It's absolutely unbelievable. They'll get letters. The employees get letters saying, if you want your benefits, you need to file by this day. I'll get filings from uh, two years ago. Guy uh, terminated him back in 2016. 2019, I get a letter saying this person is now filed for unemployment. So and be, this, you know, this person was fired for cause. They did something. Oh, they always do. Sure, They did course. something that violated your policies, and you let them go. Yeah. It was so funny. So oftentimes, it's not showing up. Really? Yeah. So they don't so show they, up for they, work. They don't show up for work, which basically in, in, it should be quitting. I mean, if you don't show up. Yeah. And, and, you know, then they put a Facebook post. And one of my guys was out on, on the night having a good time, was dumb enough to put Facebook posts. And he's showing his friends who were chefs. And I'm like, really? Yeah. And now yeah. I'm going to let him go. Right. But I'm on the hook. This man made a choice. Right. To not come to work, to put a small business owner and business employees. Look, we're small businesses. This isn't a Walmart with 700 employees that if one calls in sick we just have a manager come yeah. out front and run a register sometimes i'm down to six people well last time we chefs. were here oh, your, your I, I, chef couldn't come in for that day for some reason and i was and, doing everything and you were the chef yeah there you, you go right small business owner yeah. i'm chef i'm server yeah how many times that happens that you know when one person calls us sick on a five-person team i'm a small business owner i don't schedule mid-level managers that are just there collecting <laughs> benefits yeah. if i if i bring in six people i need that there is a job for those six people that's right Thus, if they don't show up and Let's be honest. They do this. They call in an hour before their shift. Yeah. And in fairness, you try to reach other employees. But, hey, this is their night off, too. I don't yeah, expect yeah, them to come yeah, in. Yeah. I can't expect them to come in. Of course. But now I've got five people that have to do the job of six. Now that affects customer service. Yeah. That affects your yes. reviews. Yes. Everything. Yes. People don't understand that for small business. They think, oh, let's just keep paying these employees more and more money and give them more and more rights. And then the poor business owners left holding the bag on these things. And, I'm not, again, I'm not trying to be anti-employee. I have some great employees. Yeah. But the laws are absolutely ridiculously skewed for the employees. And what's crazy is these laws are based usually in part because they're trying to prohibit 
the large companies, but they end up hurting the small companies. Right. Okay. Right. I don't know any small business owner that has an employee that's been with them for 30 years that's still making minimum wage. But why do we? Why did we have this raise of minimum wage? Because the WalMarts and the Targets were were putting employees at 31 hours because the rule was 32, keeping them there. Right. And now they create a law. Everybody has to pay 15. Right. The small business owner who's had a guy for 10 years isn't wasn't making eight dollars. I right. promise you, if he's good, there's a reason. Okay, let's understand something. There's a reason <laughs> there's some people at minimum wage and they deserve to be there. And I say deserve, just yeah. not not. I'm not making a lifetime statement. Yeah. I'm just simply saying they they're not where they need to be. They just need a job. They have no skill. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have to commit training even to the minimum wage employee, and they're probably only going to stay for a few months. Right. Why should they be paid a lot of money? Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Let them earn their pay. Right. And if they're good, they will make more. Absolutely. There is no small business owner that has a guy on his payroll. Well, somewhere there probably is. Yeah. And don't get me wrong. There are unscrupulous people. But all these these are farmers I know, they value their employees because employees make the difference when they're not there. Yeah. So if you get a good employee, believe me, and it's hard to find them, yeah. you will pay them. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. all these laws that they keep enacting to, quote, unquote, you know, fight the large companies, the large companies just find new ways to thwart them. They've got lawyers to fight the shit. they got robotics. Yeah. Now we're at the point where McDonald's yeah. and these larger companies are looking at robotics because at $35,000, a robot now makes sense for them. Right. Now, that's not going to work in a sushi restaurant where you come in and you want personalized service. Right. But even I'm employing technologies. You guys use my new laptops, my iPad tablets. Yeah, those are cool. And uh, as a small restaurant, that really doesn't help me from a labor perspective. But if I was a larger restaurant with 20 servers, you absolutely bet I can cut it down to 15. Like a children's does te- that. Yeah, technologies. Yeah. Okay, to help. So uh, the labor laws are, are ridiculously against the employers. To a certain extent, I understand that. And, and you know, government's not supposed to be business friendly in the sense that it, it represents the people, yeah. not a particular business yeah. owner. But at some point, you have to recognize that you've gone too far. And they really, they, they really is reaching a point between the fees, between the burdens they place on owners to manage all these rules. Every day I get a letter saying, we're, if you don't do this, we're going to fine you $2,500. If you don't do this, you know, we're going to fine you this. If you don't do this, and it's just, you know, it drives you nuts. Yeah. And they're just complete idiots. They want you to fax things. We haven't, who it's uses a fax. a fax anymore? <laughs> you know, I call them, you, you can't reach them on, they don't, don't don't have emails, and they're like, we need to fax this form in. I can't. Oh, how, let me email you. Oh, they don't let us do personal. Well, how about you have an email box for these documents? Right. Yeah. I can scan them and make a PDF and send them to you. No, we need a fax, or we mail it. And you know what happens yeah. with mail. Then I have to follow up. I have to call to make sure they got it. Right. Because they threatened me with that $2,500 fine if I don't reply by this day. Right. They said, you would not believe the paperwork. They, they, the trees they kill. The paperwork. I just got a 20-page letter. A former employee owes money. Oh, by the way, we're also the government. Did you know small business owners are the government's collection agencies? Anything an employee doesn't pay, if they end up in a collection, a small, I end up getting these huge packages saying, you know, this employee with this social security number, I mean, a package, like 20 pages with a deduction schedule and how much I'm supposed to deduct because they owe money, either taxes or a child support or, or something. I'm literally, it drives me nuts. I literally spend probably two to three hours every week just responding to current and or mostly former employees that I've got collection requests. I've got um, really friendly government, uh, taxes, uh, judgments, child support. I got one right now every, every day. And you have to, now I have to go research when I terminate them because you have to You have to be exact. They can just send the shit out willy-nilly, <laughs> right. but if I don't reply and fill out the form, prompt. so I basically had an unemployment claim come against me because I didn't check a box. 
I forget what it was. Really? It was something that simple. They said, well, you didn't check the box. They sent me a letter saying I didn't check the box. If you had just called me and said, hey, Bob, send resend this form with the box checked, it would have been it, proper. But now I'm on the hook because I didn't check the box and they sent the letter. And because they mail it, and stuff doesn't come in three days, they mail it with the date that they mail it and they give you 30 days from that date. Anyhow, it, it, it's crazy. It, it's unbelievable. And see, and you just want to make these creative, innovative sushi, sushi rolls. And I spend hours every week just dealing with some of this minutiae. Now, the, the government part that I will tell you and I'm super impressed with is our health department. To that end, I will tell you that our government, uh, we should all be very happy and proud. Uh, millions of people eat out every day. Uh, mm-hmm. As I said, there are sushi places that don't do good fish. When I say good, I'm talking about the quality of taste. I'm yeah. not talking, yeah. you know, we don't have people dying from bad fish. We do have some, you know, <laughs> we've got some shops that yeah. maybe aren't as cleanly and people get some small cases of food poisoning. But I mean, you think about it. Uh, I think the last big uh, E. coli outbreak was a, a popular food chain. They were able to determine the field that it came from, the row in that field that it came from. It was a vegetable. I think it was broccoli or something. And, they had, and it turned out that they had moved cows two pastures down, but when they moved them, it put it in a wind pattern where their manure or something was blowing and over the field. That out. And they figured that out. Wow. So there are a lot of rules and regulations regarding our health, but I will tell you that I I applaud uh, our health department. While it's a pain in the ass, um, I realize that they're not there for me to be successful. They're there to protect the public. And, you know, we've all served food to our friends, but I'm going to tell you, when you serve a thousand individuals in a week, you come across everything, weeks, immune systems, allergies you never even thought existed. So the government's there to protect all those people. And they do, the health department, anything they've ever asked us to do. Uh, the people are great about explaining why. And, and as much as those fees were in the beginning, uh, I had some uh, issues with my plumber who did some things wrong, and the health department guy came in and said, it has to be redone. And I'm like, oh my God, there's going to be more money for me. Yeah. I said, tell me why. And he explained it why, and he explained it beautifully. You know, it had to do with health issues. It, somewhere, some place, someone got sick because this wasn't right. So generally, the health department, uh, the policies and procedures that they put us through are, are there for the customers. How protection. often do they inspect you? Uh, about every six months. Okay. And, do they and then there's lots of different inspections. There's the health department inspection. Then there's obviously insurance companies come in every so often to make sure that, you know, your equipment's where it's supposed to be. If they see anything, um, there's about four or five different and inspections. And they can just show up at any random yeah, they time? They show up at any time, yeah. Yeah. And then the health, there's also the sewage department, uh, uh, city governments that yeah, yeah. The, the check our grease trap to make sure we're Amazing. training it every yeah. month or whatever the schedule yeah. is supposed to be. But again, and those are things that, you know, those are necessary evils. Yeah. And I, say, I use the word evil, but they're for the consumer's protection. And I, I'm one of the biggest advocates uh, for once our government gets it right. Well, because I mean, you're the, all about quality sushi. Yeah. You want the whole presentation to be quality. You want it to be clean, I'm healthy, not, yeah. all that. So that makes sense. Yeah. So I'm sure they're just reinforcing the policies that you implement as a business owner yourself. And they find things that we don't. You know, obviously, yeah, when you work with a thousand restaurants, they're going to come across things that maybe my restaurant doesn't do, but maybe I was going to do. But now, because of a uh, health department policy, we're not going to do that because a, a memo came out and said, don't do your fish this way. I maybe wouldn't have thought of that because I don't see mm-hmm. the end result. They do. I mean, a million people do eat every day. So when there are problems or issues that arise, they try to come up with solutions for that. Then they'll send out a memo. This is how we want everybody to handle their fish according to this way. So now you're an entrepreneur. Tell me a little bit about the new things that you're working on in your business. Okay. So some of the uh, exciting things. So Subuku is my passion. And you know that. Yeah, you can sense yeah. that. Hopefully folks listening can feel that from me. Uh, this is my baby. I, I've never 
done something there where I've been this passionate about it. I love it. it, it it's it's hard, but it's it's what I it's, it's me. This yeah, book is yeah, me. Yeah. Um, it's a wonderful thing. But the problem with Sabuku is it's not replicable. It's not scalable. So here I am. I've created a business. Can you imagine if I could only make one iPad? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> if I'm right. at Steve Jobs, yeah. I can only make one iPad. That's it. You can only make one product. Right. Well, you can't, you know, products come and go or, you know, things, yeah. cycles, right? Mm-hmm. So um, recognizing the challenges that I'm having in as a restaurateur, as an entrepreneur, um, and from some of the successes that we're having within Subuku, I, I came up with a new restaurant, non-restaurant idea. So to mitigate some of the employee issues, to to um, mitigate the cost of opening a restaurant, the yeah. cost involved, you realize that right now I'm paying rent and it's just you and me in here. We're not even open. So I'm <laughs> right. paying rent. I'm right. paying electricity. Yeah. Refrigerators are running. Restaurants are incredibly underutilized. It's amazing to me that so many restaurants, think about it, Jane's around the corner doesn't open to 4 or 5 p.m. every day and they close at what 9 or 10 that means for 20 hours a day that business all that equipment is being completely underutilized right so I'm starting a a non-restaurant idea I'm calling Munchie Bowl Mm -hmm. what I'm going to do is I'm going to take simple foods Comfort foods don't. Uh, a lot of folks are associating that because I have sabuku, this will be a fish-based type business. It's not. It's going to be a comfort food-based business. And what I want to try to do is take advantage of. Uh, I want to franchise, but I want to. I'm thinking of the small restaurateur who's successful and wants to open another business but doesn't want to drop another half million dollars on equipment, fees, Mm -hmm. more employees, Mm -hmm. more space that's underutilized. What I want to do, if you take a look right now on Adams Avenue, we've got 20 restaurants right now on Adams Avenue. None of them are open. Well, maybe a few of the breakfast places. Okay. So at any given time, we have millions of dollars of equipment that we paid and bought for that's just sitting idle. Yeah, right on. Okay. So what I want to do is take the Munchie Bowl concept, which is simple foods, uh, simple products, but that tastes very good, and present them to other restaurateurs. Let me give you an example. Antique Row right here next to me closes every day at 2 o'clock. Is there a breakfast joint? Mm-hmm. Why, why do they have to open another restaurant if they want to grow? How do we figure out how to better maximize or better utilize our restaurant spaces? I'm empty every morning. There's nobody in here. Right. Okay. So what if Munchie Bowl, instead of having to open more restaurants, what if I found a business model? And that's the part I'm still worried. Munchie Bowl is brand new. Right. Uh, right now I'm incubating it or testing the food concepts here in Sabuku. But what I want to do is take this to a new a new uh, restaurant, non-restaurant platform. Munchie Bowl is going to be an online concept only. And I want to figure out the franchise model where we put it in existing restaurants where they don't have to add square footage. They don't have to change their venue. We simply just simply become a pickup or a dist- deliveries, for example. I can't deliver to Chula Vista from this location. Mm-hmm. But if I found a restaurant partner down in Chula Vista mm-hmm. that wanted to be a pickup spot, doesn't they, they don't have to change their restaurant concept. You don't, you don't want to be a sushi place and the next table over they're getting breakfast foods. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. People kind of want to feel like, oh, this is my sushi spot. This is my breakfast place. Yeah, yeah. They don't want to go, what? I mean, it's not a food court. Right, right, okay? right, right. So as a business owner, you don't want to change your, your 
your business venue all that much, but you're looking for additional revenue opportunities. Yeah. What if I can come up with a new franchise model where we put Munchie Bowl into existing restaurants that are underutilized at various times? Mm-hmm. So if Munchie Bowl is in Sabuku in the mornings, and then I talk to my neighbor next door here who closes every day at 2 o'clock and says, why don't we put Munchie Bowl for you in the evenings? I'm busy, but in the evenings, you're not. Right. You're closed. Right. What if we were to come up with a business model where we could work together and we both become the distribution points for Munchie Bowl? Right. And you don't need to change your revenue. You don't know additional revenue. You don't need to buy additional equipment. You don't need to do further investment, just additional weight, because that's the problem for the small business owner. We, you, you've got us, you, we, we, all of these restaurants, we've put hundreds of thousands of dollars, and in a weird way, we're trapped now, yeah. because we have put our life in this. You better love what you do. You're I right. feel bad for those people that are doing it for the business reasons, and then obviously fail, right. and you watch hundreds of thousands of dollars just uh, go out of their wallet. Right. I'm successful because I'm passionate about what I do. They're successful. Antique Row, mm-hmm. Osprape, Cueva Bar, these are people who are passionate about what they do and they do it really well but that doesn't mean that we're not also interested in new opportunities and new avenues mm-hmm. we just don't want to spend another half million dollars to well, do yeah, so yeah okay this restaurant was almost three hundred thousand dollars by the time i was done 1500 square feet yeah, people don't realize wow. that. 300 grand. Yeah. Wow. The bars, that's an $80,000 bar. Really? Yeah. It's a beautiful bar. The study you, grand? The, you think it's the granite? It's not the granite. It's the stainless steel. That stainless steel counter custom piece was $15,000 for a piece of stainless steel. The hood in the kitchen was $26,000 to run the hood up the building. People think this is stuff that's just, you know, oh, I got a refrigerator at Home Depot for 100 Oh, refrigerators. My little under-counter fridge has to be NSF certified, not just, you know, your Home Depot fridge. Right. My, my under-the-counter fridge is $2,700. You can get the same damn thing as a consumer for, what, 300 bucks at Home Depot? Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, commercial equipment's ridiculous. My ice machine broke. I tried to find a used ice. You can't even find it. I said, I don't do used. Used uh, used commercial equipment, they only, it goes for about 60% of original. I'm like, for the other 40%, at least I get a warranty. I yeah, typically replace Yeah, if it fails, I'm screwed. If it's yeah. new, at least I have a warranty. Right. So I generally, when equipment fails, and it does, after eight years, I've already replaced uh, two, three refrigerators, you know. And that's the other thing people don't realize is that a small restaurant, or uh, I just mentioned that you can sit here and you're $80, how much? Every time a piece of equipment goes, it's twenty five hundred dollars. It's two thousand dollars here, three thousand dollars. How many sushi rolls you got to sell just to cover that? (laughs) Yeah. So that's what I'm saying. I I think the Munchie Bowl concept. um, First, again, I'm going to start off with good food from the success of our chicken bowls and some of the things that we've done here very well. And I want to present it to other restaurateurs who would see it as an additional revenue opportunity without having. So it's going to be a franchise, but it's it's going to be franchised. But it's not going to be the traditional franchise. Because right now, I can show you on this street, I said there's 15 restaurants. Right. Go down on University. I can show you 20 small restaurants right now that each have maybe two or three people in it right now. It's not yeah, yeah. we're morning, but yeah. middle of the day. We're all we're all serving two or three people. Right. Underutilized equipment. They spent, even the smallest, that little taco shop, probably dropped $100,000 for all that equipment. It's a very innovative idea to leverage all of that infrastructure that's just sitting idle. It's just sitting idle. Yeah. we got to figure out a way to be smarter. we yeah. got to smarter, not harder. Right on. So this is an example of me seeing a problem, not just in my restaurant, but it, I say problem. We're right now underutilized equipment, right. millions of dollars. If we look at a street, pick any street in San Diego, there's probably 12 restaurants. Oh, yeah. Millions of dollars of equipment. Just 
And that's what's kind of wrong with this business model in the sense that that's the health department. Everybody wants you to go out and build new, wants the poor business owner to go out and just drop their, everything they've ever made successfully to start this business right, up. Right. And I understand, again, we talked about the health department. There's reasons for that. I mean, obviously, you want the right equipment. Mm-hmm. They don't want Home Depot appliances because they haven't passed tests and right. people fired. And we, we understand all that. But it, right. it's a huge barrier to entry. It's also a huge barrier to get to that next level of success. Right. If you have one location, why do I need six? I really don't want six. I don't want six Ibukus. I can't be at all six. I can't share the passion. I can't get six probably uh, uh, operations that are going to run with passion, employees with passion. There's right. a reason, right. you know, in and out burgers, beautiful business model, a bunch of teenagers running around with one manager. Their manager's not passionate about food. <laughs> I love, no. don't get me wrong, I love yeah. in and out burger, one of the best burgers in the world, but don't, those people aren't passionate about no, food. They're not. Let's be clear. Yeah. The kids need jobs. The manager needs a job. They're not passionate about food. Uh, you're not passionate about something if all you're going to do is follow a recipe. Granted, one of the best recipes ever. Yeah. But it's, you're just churning out burgers. Right. Okay? So, you know, when you're passionate about something, you can't replicate it. Brian Larkey, our, our celebrity chef, opened all those restaurants a few years back. Where is he back down to? One. Right. Because you can't just, it's not about name. People come to your restaurant for your food, and they'll taste the passion, or they won't. Right. All right? So the small restaurant tour is almost screwed in that sense because they're, they can't, Anybody else, if I'm HP, I can build more models. Right. As a small restaurant tour, you can't build more models. You, you, you literally are prohibited from doing so because you literally can't spread yourself that thin. Because it's not so a scalable model. It's not a scalable model. Right. So what I'm doing with Munchie Bowl is the exact opposite of what Sabuku is. Sabuku is my passion. Sabuku is an extension of me. Mm-hmm. Munchie Bowl is going to be a combination of what I see in my experiences now for eight, using my business background, acumen, uh, understanding scalability, and then looking at the restaurant industry and seeing where uh, there are opportunities. The cuisine is amazing too. And Munchie Bowl, I'm going to tell you straight up, um, we, we, we did some chicken bowls. We were doing 10 pounds of chicken a week because who does chicken at a sushi place? The kids get their spicy teriyaki, they get their chicken teriyaki. Yeah. Um, some people, who you, you got four friends that want sushi. One, one person says, no, I want chicken. So we had the chicken as more like obligatory. Yeah. Not that we didn't do it well, yeah. but the chicken was just there because for yeah. people who didn't want sushi. Yeah. We went from 10 pounds a week to over 90 pounds a week on our chicken bowls. That's wow. how good they are. So while they're simple, while they're easy to make, while I don't require uh, a professional sushi chef to make them. The, right. the, the basic formula is simple. They're very good foods. Well, it's like In-N-Out Burger, right? I exactly. Mean, so you've got a, a, a good uh, recipe. You've got recipe. a recipe. You've got a process. Process. And you've got a that's simple menu that's easy to execute and it's consistent it, it, it can, quality. It can be put into an Italian restaurant. It can be put into a Mexican restaurant. It can be put into the breakfast place that's not open at night or, or even if they're open. Maybe they're just, right. you know, their businesses. You know, we all have those times. Like I said, as a restaurant, I need to strike from 6 to 9 p.m. That is where 90% of my business comes from. People laugh. Like, they'll come in here. You guys are in here. I think maybe one or two other people yeah. all day. Yeah. I'd have to have a chef here anyways. Right. The, energy, the, the, the bills, the, everything's ticking anyways. I might as well be open. But truthfully, I'm not making any money because we're people come out to eat dinner yeah. between 6 and 9. Yeah. There's a reason you have to have happy hour specials to get people come in. Well, there's a few people that mm-hmm. that do dine at 4 p.m. The truth of the matter is they're coming in for this, the early birds 
specials and right. prices. You're, you're, you're trying to drive a behavior instead of the natural one. So it really is, a, that's what I'm talking about. It's not about unsuccessful restaurants that need additional revenue. It's about successful restaurants that need, that would like additional revenue in the right context. Yes. So the breakfast place that is open 24 hours, but let's be honest, they're really cranking out food from 6 a.m. to noon, 11. Yeah. And then from 11 on, they, they drop the staff down to one chef, one server. Why not put Munchie Bowl in there and see what, how can you generate additional revenue? Just right. pick up. Don't have to change it. Don't have to change your style. Don't have to do anything. It's simply a pickup and distribution point for delivery drivers to come in, utilize that kitchen now that's just sitting there. That's a lot of equipment. Right. And then your, your system, you're delivering orders to them. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I, I love the I innovative think ideas. It, I think it's, I think it's groundbreaking because it's good. It, I think it's going to change things. It's a non-restaurant restaurant. Yeah. That's so awesome. Yeah. I think, think I'm, I'm, I'm very excited about that. Yes. So, Bob, I want to thank you. You, you, yeah. you have so much energy, so much passion. You know, like we say, that life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. You embody all of those ideals, and that's why we love you. We came here, we had lunch, and we, you know, Zeke and I, we just stumbled on you, and like, oh my god. So, Bob, thank you. We thank wish you. you the most success. Appreciate that. And um, we'll be coming back. Thank you. Great, right. great to be here. All right. All right. Thanks, John.